whenever we hear about judgment and we hear about God hating evil, for the most part, we're aligned. When we hear things like God is only, always, ever against evil, we go, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. And that God is only for things that are righteous and pure and good. We go, yeah, I, I'm against evil and I'm, a, I'm for things that are good and pure and righteous. But then when we understand that God's view of evil is very different than ours, that God's view of evil, because God is perfect and holy, has never done anything wrong, He's without blemish, spot, or stain because God's view of different is so, view of evil is so radically different than ours. It begins at times to rub against some of our sensibilities. Isn't that extreme? Doesn't that feel like it's too much? Is it really just? And in our fallenness and in our creatureliness, it's hard for us to, I would actually say impossible for us, to comprehend the justice of God. The justice of God. We lose sight of the fact that he is a God who is other and we are creatures. That we are sinful in our fallenness and he is holy, completely, utterly holy. We lose fact that we can never tell someone's motives or what's going on inside. God knows every motive, every thought, every deed, whether hidden or seen. He knows everything comprehensively and completely. Our knowledge is always incomplete. God's knowledge is never incomplete. And so as we come to Genesis 18 and 19, we come to a section of Scripture by which, for some, we struggle to understand the vastness of God's judgment. This is compared a few times in the New Testament to the flood account. And so as we walk through this, you will see some parallels. Even in the way that Moses has granted the account, you'll see some of the parallels. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 18, beginning at verse 16, and all of Genesis 19, and other passages that I'm going to refer to. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous, that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if it's not true, I will know. These are the men that came to visit Abraham and Sarah, we looked at this last week where they told them now in their 99th year, Abraham's 99th year, that next year they would have child. Next year they would be uh, with a baby in their arms. Sarah laughed. We looked at that. Abraham had laughed previously. And in this account that we have, they now are getting up to leave, having been hospitable or shown hospitality by Abraham and Sarah. And they look over at Sodom and the Lord says, I'm going to reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do because I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I'm about to totally annihilate it for its sin. It talks here about how the cry of their sin has reached him. Now, when it says the Lord has come down, the idea is, is not that God actually needs to come down. God knows all things. God is saying, I am thoroughly inspecting the sin of this city so that my justice is pure 
and true. God wants to ensure that his justice is always pure and true. It's always just. And so he says, I'm going to have a full cross-examination of the city. The cry of the city could be the cry of their sin reaching him. That's a possibility. Or it could be the cry of other nations that are hearing about what Sodom and Gomorrah are doing. And they're crying out saying, oh, their wickedness. That even the other wicked nations are saying their wickedness is a step beyond our wickedness. And that occurs sometimes. This occurred in the time of the flood. It occurs with nations. We can think of Myanmar right now. And the atrocities going on in Myanmar that are there 15 years ago against the Karen. I mean, ethnic genocide. We can think of our own nation even this week with the indigenous school, residential schools. And the horrors that we hear about that for 129 years... We abducted 150,000 children from their homes. Over 3,200 accounted for as dead, but more so than that. And stories of sexual and physical abuse, stories of neglect and malnourishment, the horrors at the hand of who? Our government and the church. Our government and the church, our nation. And it didn't just occur in one part of our nation, it occurred across our nation, this genocide. And so as you hear the horror of that, at times a nation itself is collectively guilty. In this case, it's a city. In the account of the flood, it's the world. The men turned away and they went towards Sodom. Abraham stood there before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare it or spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing and kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you, will not, sorry, the judge of all the earth do right? So Abraham begins to negotiate with God. He says, God, Lord, will you really sweep away the city if there's 50 righteous people there? The Lord says, I will not. The Lord says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, verse 26, I will spare the whole place for their sake. He says, I will spare the whole place if 50 righteous people are there. Abraham then begins to negotiate. What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? And the Lord says, even if there's 10, I will not. God says, even if there's 10, as I go, I will not destroy the city for the sake of 10 righteous people. But there aren't even ten. Ten aren't there. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. This should remind us as we watch Abraham and the Lord negotiate that we should never, never, ever should we delight in the judgment of others. When others are being judged by the Lord, it's never something for us to delight in. The Lord himself does not take delight in the destruction of those that are evil or the death of those that are unrighteous. He doesn't. And so we should always be concerned. We should always be moved by those around us who don't know the Lord, by the unrighteous. The unrighteousness of the world around us should cause us to cringe in the sense that it should be like, oh, God, would you save them? It shouldn't ever be a, oh, that's way beneath me. No, I'd never do that. We misunderstand our depravity and we misunderstand or construe God's grace 
If we ever think something is so far beneath us that we could never do that. We then are leaving and living sorry, as legalists. But whenever we see someone's sin, it should cause us to grieve and cry out on their behalf to the Lord. Like Abraham to intercede. Oh God, God would you save. God the righteous judge would you be at work. Two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside uh, to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and go on your way early in the morning. No, they said, we'll spend the night in the square. But he strongly insisted. They did go with him. They entered his house, prepared a meal. He prepared a meal for them. He baked bread without yeast, and they ate. So Lot is found at the gateway of the city. Remember, at first, when Abraham and Lot had to part ways and Abram gave Lot the opportunity to go whichever way he went. He was enticed by Sodom. He went to live by Sodom, and then he lived in Sodom. Then he was captured by, while he was living in Sodom. Abram came and rescued him with his men, rescued Lot, and now we find Lot at the gate of the city. That means that Lot has adopted, to the most part, the culture of the city. The gate of the city is where judgment was made. The gate of the city is where rulings was made. The gate of the city is where the elders of the city would gather to make city decisions. It's the city council meeting, if you will. And Lot's found there. Lot's found at the gate of the city. He's found with the others there, and these two angels come. Lot recognizes them as strangers, but also as significant and he offers them hospitality. You'll see the parallel here from chapter 18 earlier on where Abraham offers hospitality. Lot, again, hospitable towards strangers. He says, come, stay, wash your feet, I'll feed you. And so they do. Before they had all gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out so that we can be with them or have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them. He shut the door behind them and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters. They've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you want with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. That whole portion of this encounter throws us. I mean, the men, young and old, gather around wanting to take the strangers to do with them as they please. Lot, in offering to protect them, though his sons-in-laws, who are engaged, that's what you would call them then, the men they're engaged with daughters are there in the house with them. We see this right here in the account. He offers his own daughters to the men and says, you can have them instead. Take them. And so we see the sin of the city. We see Lot's sin even further. We see the, the, the potential here for all of this abuse. Emotionally, physically, sexually. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner. That's Lot they're speaking of. And now he wants to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. If you think what we're going to do to them is bad, Lot, what we're about to do you after is worse. And keeping, keep, they kept bringing pressure on Lot, and he moved forward to break down the door. Lot, remember your place. You're not one of us. What we're about to do them, it will be nothing compared to what we're going to do to you after. And they're about to break down the door to come in. But of course, the men inside are angels. 
They reach out, they pull Lot back into the house, they shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they couldn't find the door. Some would say the idea of the blindness is that, is that a mist struck them. It's not that they were necessarily completely blind, but the idea is they couldn't find the door. It wasn't that they couldn't see anything else. But now the door was, was in a place where they could not find it. They were kept from seeing it. The two men said to Lot, is anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against this people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. He says, Lot, is there anyone else here? Any other family here? Get out, get out now. Now, I want you to note this in the text. This is really important. Lot hesitates several times. Lot hesitates. They're saying, get them, leave, go, now. So Lot went out. He spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to marry his uh, daughters. And he said, hurry. So again, called sons-in-laws, but pledged to be married. Hurry, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy it. But they thought he was joking. They thought he was lying. And you see this contrasted here with Noah as God is saving Noah's family. Noah's sons and their daughters-in-laws all come. Noah's three sons-in-law all come, or, or sorry, daughters-in-law. He's got three sons, three daughters-in-law. They all come with Noah and his wife. But the contrast here is that Lot's sons-in-laws don't. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here with you, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. Earlier in the night, they said, leave, get out of here now. Warn those that are with you and go. Lot's sons-in-laws, or those pledged to be married to his daughters, won't leave. They're not trusting Lot here. They don't believe what he's saying. They don't think this is going to occur. Lot hesitates through the night, and now it's morning, and they're like, you've got to get out of here. You've got to go. But the coming, of, uh, sorry, verse 16, when he hesitated, Lot hesitates again. You can see how much of that culture and influence has worked its way into Lot's heart and life. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. They actually grab a hold of them and lead them out. Which does speak of God's care and concern for his people. The Lord was merciful to them. The end of verse 16. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Don't look back. Don't stop. Don't hesitate. Go to the mountains. Run. But Lot said to them, I mean, this hesitancy here over and over again. My lords, please, no. Your servant has found favor in your eyes. You've shown me great kindness by sparing my life. I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me. I will die. He lived in the mountains previous to this with Abraham. They lived in as agrarian people. He's now gotten used to city life. He's like, I can't go there all the time. Actually, Lot, you won't. You didn't before, you won't now. But that's how he feels. Look, there's a town near enough to run to. It's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? My life will be spared. They said to him, very well. We will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything to you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. The request is granted. It seems as if this was a town that was going to be overthrown, 
Why do we think that? I mean, I mean, he says, I won't overthrow it. But Lot is like, I still need to be with these people. I still need to be associated with them. I still need to, let me go to the town. Don't send me the mountains. I can't survive. By the time Lot had reached Zor and the sun had risen over the land, the Lord began to rain down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. He overthrew the cities and the entire plain. He destroyed all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. So Lot's wife at some point hesitates. She looks back. Now some people say you can translate this. She actually went back. The idea here is more that she went back and then going back, the sulfur that was pouring down turned her into a pillar of salt. I don't think the text leads in that direction. I think the idea is that she actually hesitated and looked back. I think that's why it's translated that way. And in her looking, God's judgment fell on her because they were told not to look back or to hesitate. Early the next morning, Abram got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the plain of the land. He saw dense smoke rising from the land like the smoke from a furnace. Remember, that's what we had in the beginning of this encounter. Abraham was looking over the land at Sodom and Gomorrah, interceding for it. And now we find it full circle with him looking over the land at God's judgment. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. He brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zor, so they left the city, the little town they were in. They settled in the mountains. They went where God wanted them to be, for he was afraid to stay there. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. And at the end of this encounter, like the end of the encounter with Noah, we have Lot's drunk. Now, Lot's daughters, in this case, they plot to get him drunk. In both encounters, both Noah and Lot are drunk, and their children are involved. In Noah's case, one of his children see Noah naked and describe it to the other children, the other sons, who go in backwards and cloak Noah. In Lot's case, his daughters devise a plan by which in getting their dad drunk, he can get them pregnant. And so that's what happens. And he doesn't remember either of those incidents on those two different nights when He's with his daughters. So three things for the next several minutes about this. One is sin. Sin. God hates sin. God hates our sin. God hated their sin. So what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Earlier in Genesis, we have Sodom as described as wicked. Sodom has already been described as wicked. We have the encounter of its wickedness and sexual wickedness and abuse of wickedness here in Genesis 19. But I want you to hear this from Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. Now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. They were overfed. They were unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Did you catch that? They were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and they did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. God says, I want you to know that the sin of Sodom mentioned in Genesis isn't their only sin. And in fact, in this situation, in Ezekiel, God doesn't even mention any of the sexual sin. God mentions arrogance, indulgence, 
not caring for the poor, neglecting the poor. God says, I wipe them out, I judge them because of their arrogance, their indulgence, their neglect of the poor. They, they let people live in tents on their streets. They didn't care for them. And they indulged. They renovated. They worked on their homes. They did all kinds of things. They bought and bought and bought. They spent on themselves. God says, that's, that's what's going on here. They were haughty. And in that haughtiness, they did detestable things. We need to be clear that that's part of the judgment of Sodom. You see, we hear the encounter of Sodom and we say, well, that's not my sin. But do we neglect the poor? I mean, how many of us through this pandemic have truly been generous to the Lord in the way that we've cared for the poor? I know we've built a building that has housed 49 people in 45 apartments. But we still have people living on our streets in this city. Do we really care for the poor? I mean, if you looked at your bank book, your, your, your checking account, your, 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 your bank statements, your Visa and MasterCard over the last year, what would they say about your care for the marginalized and the poor? Would they say that you've been overfed and have been unconcerned about them? You've indulged. What about our arrogance? Where we live the way we want, where we dismiss forgiving someone, where we justify our bitterness, where we think it's okay to be angry. Now, I want you to note this is also in Jude. Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned a number of times in Scripture. Jude 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so here you have mentioned the sexual perversion. I don't want that to escape us. It's there. It's clear, indicated in the text. But what we need to be thinking about is it's more than that that caused the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we don't have to speculate about it. God makes it incredibly clear in his word. And so our sin is against God. Whether it's the sin of sexual immorality and perversion or the sin of overindulgence, arrogance, and being unconcerned and not caring for the poor. Whether it's the sin of haughtiness and believing that our way is better than God's way and justifying how we choose to live. And so through Scripture, I don't have time, you can Google it later if you want. Google Sodom and Gomorrah in Scripture. In Scripture, God uses Sodom and Gomorrah as the standard for his judgment. And he talks about it by which we can relate to the understanding of his eternal judgment. So Isaiah 1, listen to these words. Your country is desolate. Your cities burn with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Verse 8. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cu cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had given us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. God, God is saying, my judgment came. And Isaiah is saying, if God didn't show some grace even in his judgment, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. Then, then this, verse 10. So hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of the Lord, you people of Gomorrah. God then calls Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. That would have been one of the greatest insults that God's people could have ever heard. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of fat, and animals. 
I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats when you appear before me. Who has asked of this, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing these meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. These new moons, these Sabbaths, these convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. God says, you've become just like Sodom and Gomorrah to Israel. This is part of Isaiah 1 and God's judgment. And if you continue to read in God's judgment of Isaiah 1, it's about their injustice. It's about their injustice toward each other, their injustice toward the poor. It's all part of Isaiah 1. And God's really clear here. He says, I want you to know that you're still gathering and I'm done with it. They're still offering their sacrifices. They're still gathering on the Sabbath. They're still showing up at their prayer meetings. They're still coming together and God says, but your sin has reached me. So what do we do with that? Oh, well, here, Luke 17. Let me, let me do this one, and then I'll, what we do with that. Just verse 26. Just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People are eating and drinking and marrying and being given up in marriage. Everybody's just going about with their life. Up until the day Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came, destroyed them all. It's the same in the days of Lot. People are eating and drinking. They're buying and selling. They're planting and building. He compares the two. The flood account and the Sodom and Gomorrah account. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, destroyed them all. And it will be like this the day the Son of Man, the day Jesus Christ returns. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside will go and get them. Likewise, no one in the field will go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? This is where he mentions Lot's wife. Lot's wife thought she should, she should look back. Whoever tries to keep your life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. Here he contrasts Lot's wife to us and God's judgment of the flood and God's judgment in the days of Lot. And so how do we understand grace in this? This is a long passage. Listen, Ezekiel 18. But if a wicked person turns away, verse 21, from all their sins they have committed, and they keep my decrees, and they do what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they have done, they will live. I do not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and lives? But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and they commit sin and they do the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that that person's done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. God says, the unrighteous can turn to me in repentance and be righteous. And the righteous can turn from me and be declared wicked. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge you according to your own ways, declare the Lord's. So repent, turn from your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of these offenses um, that you have committed, have a new heart, a new spirit. Why would you die? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so repent and live. That's Ezekiel 18. And you see the contrast even between Sodom and Gomorrah and Nineveh, where Sodom and Gomorrah are judged. And Jonah is called to Nineveh, and he doesn't want to go there. At the end of the book, he says to God, I knew you were like this. I knew if they repented, I knew if they turned to you that you would relent and you would save them. And that's what God did. 
Because God is not willing that anyone perish. He longs for all to repent. So lastly and quickly, this is where you see God's grace. This will throw you. It threw me. I knew it was there. Second Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So again, God's judgment, Noah, now again Sodom and Gomorrah. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he burned them to ashes, made them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. But he rescued Lot, note this, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of, lawless, of the lawless. For that righteous man, he's called righteous twice here, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul three times by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Jason, you guys can come up. We hear of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and sometimes we go, What? God, isn't that extreme? And God's like, no, I am holy, I am perfect, I have judged righteously. And then we hear that Lot is called righteous. When he camped near the city, then found himself in the city, then when he was rescued, when he was taken from the city, went back in the city, was found at the gate, was hesitating, and ended up fathering uh, his own grandchildren to become two nations that are always in opposition to Israel. And here, three times we hear of his righteousness in Peter. What happened? Well, Ezekiel 18 happened. At some point in Lot's life, he came to God in repentance, and God saved. God saved. And he saves so completely and comprehensively that when he looks at him, all he can see is righteousness. Is that not good news? I mean, when I talked earlier today about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, about truly not caring for the poor, not that we should ever justify that, about haughtiness, about arrogance, about indulgence and overindulgence, about thinking more about ourselves, what we can buy, what we can purchase, what we can own, what we can do, over and against sacrificially giving what we have to the Lord. That hits most of us, doesn't it? And aren't we thankful that the accomplished work of Christ and his shed blood is enough that any time we repent, any time we come to him, what is true is there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What it says is this. If in your heart you find yourself justifying your sin, you need to be very careful about what that is saying about your soul. If you're ever justifying your greed, ever justifying the way you treat the poor, ever justifying your arrogance, ever justifying your sin, bitterness, rage, whatever it would be, it says something about your soul. We're all going to sin. We're going to sin until we see Jesus. And our posture should always be, oh Lord, I hate my sin. Do you hate your sin? When your sin is pointed out to you, do you cry out in repentance, oh God, I have sinned. 
Do you hate your sin? Do you cry out to God in repentance? God, would you take this away? God, would you help me to hate this? God, would you help me to be generous? God, would you help me to love the poor? God, would you help me to be humble? God, would you allow me to not overindulge, but instead to be giving away? God, would I never be haughty? God, would I be someone who is forgiving? Would you hate your sin? Knowing that God desires that we turn from sin and turn to him and be saved. I am so thankful that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because I know my sinful heart and the judgment I deserve and I'm ever thankful for the grace of God. And so God, we're thankful for this day and these passages that remind us not only of your judgment then and coming judgment, but also of your grace offered to us by way of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who took our place on the cross, dying in our stead so that we could be granted his righteousness. So God, cause our hearts to be tender. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.